Hi, this is Paul. My conversation with Malcolm and Simone published today, and uh, the teaser at the front end, they always do a teaser at the front end. Uh, I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be interesting to hear the response of this. Conditions of almost every kind are being tremendously tested, and most of them are, are, are found wanting. And this includes, now, every, all the Christians listening to this, I know a bunch of my people are going to find their way to your channel and listen to this. This includes the church. Mm. And what, so G.K. Chesterton talked about, I don't remember it was five or seven, but the five deaths of Christianity. He said, mm. basically, Christianity has died five times. And I think that's true. And I think the church, as most of us have known it, which, again, generalizations are really tough. But many of us have known churches that are fundamentally modernist institutions sort of created around modernist assumptions, including my own denomination. Many of these churches are going away and they are going away fast. Would you like to know more? All right. All right. So, so and then so the conversation is on their channel and, and you can watch the whole thing. Now, whenever I talk this way. Some people, that, well, even though churches are going away, I don't think the church is going anywhere. I think the church is going to continue to change and adapt for its environment and for its time. And that change and adaptation is not going to be simple or simplistic. It doesn't mean that some of the more ancient forms like the Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism are going to last and Protestantism is going to go away. No, it's, it's, it's far more complex than that. But what I wanted to talk about is something that I've talked about. I think I talked about it with Malcolm and Simone. I've, I've talked about it with Sam. Malcolm was just on Sam's channel. And it has to do with how the internet breeds autodidacts. Now, this happened um so i was having a conversation with another crc pastor and i brought up my i brought up um servetus because of course for calvinist ministers servetus is a is a is a topic that comes up i mean servetus in many ways was an autodidact and yeah had had difficulty had difficulty there in the very early protestant reformation period and Sam, Sam and I went back and forth a little bit on Servetus and, you know, his execution in Geneva. The Christian Reformed Church is currently, they had a couple synods on same-sex marriage. Christian Reformed Church stayed in the conservative camp and is going to stay in the conservative camp on that. But now the Christian Reformed Church has to figure out how confessionality works. And that's going to be a really difficult thing. Because on one hand, you can write a whole bunch of things on paper that say, well, here's the line. On the other hand, you know, a lot of, a lot of people can, can sort of lie or just keep their mouths shut. Or you'll have whole sections of the church that, well, if you're not doing something that crosses the line, like performing same-sex weddings or, or something like that, you can still go along to get along, but stuff will be happening inside people's minds. Now, Jordan just did this video with Michaela about the situation with Jordan's clinical license. And I always find these very interesting videos to watch in terms of much more than Jordan's interview videos. You get a sense of
who he is and how he's doing in his interior monologue, especially because he's he's speaking with his daughter, so he will he will be very frank. And and I find whenever they do videos like this, I find them to be tremendously transparent and frank. And you, you just sort of see the wheels turn inside Jordan's mind. That's not that's not the interest in this topic about confessionality, because in the Christian Forum Church, confessionality doesn't work wholly differently than the College of Psychologists of the province of Ontario in terms of trying to police those people with whom whom they've given them a license or, in the case of the Christian Forum Church, a credential. Because the reason these practices happen is because populations are too large for face-to-face -face relationships. And so when, let's say, a Christian Reformed church is looking for a new minister, they want to find someone who has, um, who basically can be trusted. Well, trusted, trusted to do what? Well, trusted to maintain a tradition. This is, this is, this is what, I mean, luckily you're in a position where this isn't going to crush you. But if this happened to somebody who didn't have multiple streams of income, what would they do? They'd just be re-educated and lie, I suppose. Or, or quit. Well, the problem with being, re it's not that easy to be re-educated and lie. I mean, first of all, you know, it's pretty hard on your soul. Second, you can't lie persistently without becoming corrupted. You can't pretend without tilting in the direction of your pretense. And so, an honorable person in this situation is basically, they're basically screwed. Like, there's nothing they can really do. You know, because if they quit, which is what they should do, they should tell them to go to hell publicly and repeatedly. Amy Hamm, the nurse in... Mon in okay, and then they go off from there. Now, one of, one of the guys I've talked about this quite a bit, Sam and Luke did a video that I thought was a, an excellent conversation on Sam's channel, um, Problems with Confessionalism. And both of them, Sam, of course, being a Unitarian, in many ways just trying to make his way in a Trinitarian church world. Luke, who had been uh, in John Piper's church, is now worshiping in an Orthodox church. Luke is, is very much a, a very open uh, guy who, who tells you exactly what's on his mind. And they're sort of down on confessionalism, and I can completely understand that. But at the same time, it's difficult to think of a system that's better than confessionalism if you want to sort of keep a tradition together. And you see confessionalist elements in the New Testament right from the start, those who confess Jesus is Lord. So there's a confession. And in fact, it's it's tremendously difficult to to have conversations of sufficient complexity and nuance and understanding if, in fact, we don't use confessionalism to sort of locate one another on a theological mapping. For example, okay, I'm a Christian Reformed minister, so I believe in the Trinity, and I subscribe to certain doctrinal statements. And there can be a huge amount of complexity in terms of one person's specific application to those doctrinal statements, and a lot of confessional instruments recognize that. But there can be a degree of variability, but also there has to be a degree of consistency. 
And good confessional systems really need to keep both things in balance. Now, the difficulty that we're increasingly going to have is that formation had been done in the past by, let's say, nature. Everybody, many people are working on farms. They're, they're, they're living in a natural environment which has a degree of uniformity. A lot of the, let's say, word-based knowledge that they have come from very limited sources. And you're going to find, especially with respect to those elements that confessionalism is tracking, it's easier to maintain homogeneity if there are just fewer ideas rolling around in the world. Of a given population, only a small element are going to be creative thinkers that are going to come up with new things. Now, part of what sort of throws gas on this fire is, of course, the printing press. Before that, books. But once you, once you can sort of distribute knowledge with only a degree of compared to, let's say, transmitting computer code, books have only a degree of reliability in terms of trying to, let's say, duplicate thoughts in a human being from one to another. Now with the internet, you're just going to have massive variations in what people think and believe. Now, Sam had contacted me and, and said, oh, can I have Malcolm's contact information? I said, I just communicate to them through Twitter. So you can find him on Twitter and approach them and, and talk to them. And part of my, part of my interest in the, columns, in the Collins's project is because they are dealing with some of these issues that churches are dealing with a lot. And part of what's going on out there in the open internet with respect to autodidacts is that, well, it's sort of an open range. Now, the video that I just finished on civilizational Christianity and I left with a teaser from D.C. Schindler, I've now listened to most of that video and, and most of it unfolded the way I thought it would. He basically comes to the conclusion that liberalism isn't as... Uh, <laughs> It, liberalism in, isn't as non-confessional as it appears to be. Now, this this is not a new thought or a new observation. Uh, talk to C.W. Weeks. Uh, Dutch theologians have been making this critique and observation of liberalism for a very long time. It's now coming to the fore. Most responses to it are, well, we should go back to Catholicism or orthodoxy or... Uh, certain Protestant groups based on the Reformation. None of this really deals with the challenge. You know, part of what, and, and again, Malcolm and Simone have been just wonderful conversation partners because they're, they, they don't get defensive. You know, they, they know they are working on a project for which they are autodidacts and they're idiosyncratic. What do I mean by that? They, they are creating for themselves and their children a religion which they are making up themselves and trying to figure out how it, um, basically how it travels through time. Now, 
obviously the real weakness with this is that you try to leverage a degree of Darwinian learning in that you try to look at other religions and see what sort of has triumphed through time. That's sort of the sneaky Darwinian move that religions make. The religion that you inherit has managed to survive, sort of like the genetics that you inherit has managed to survive. This is, of course, sort of based on Richard Dawkins' you know, meme idea that um, religious coding, and again, one, you know, to sort of push back on Luke, one of, but not the only one, one of the ways that religious coding travels through time is through confessional, propositional religious statements. Now, it also travels through tradition. So D.C. Schindler is going to talk a lot about tradition. This is, this is Schindler's lecture that he gave at the Benedictine College Lectures, America as, as, as Theologico-Political um, Problem. And, and part of the reason that America is a problem is because of the relationship between, let's say, propositions and traditions and real instantiations of them. Part of the reason that, now he, tra he traces it back to Spinoza, there's a lot of interesting conversations about where ideas of religious, political, religious liberty come from. Sam talked about um, talked about Unitarians in Poland who visited John Locke, and then the ideas came to America. D.C. Schindler talks about uh, Spinoza. You know, it's it, it doesn't surprise me that this idea arose probably in similar places because as I said before, when you have a difficulty, reality has a certain structure that certain items on the menu tend to surface in multiple places. There are certain solutions to problems and and one of the problems that arose in Europe was, well, we're not going to um, we're no longer going to kill Unitarians. Um, and we're not going to kill atheists, and we're not going to kill. And of course, the Dutch, as as a people, sort of came up with this. But but again, the the context in which the Dutch came up with this degree of tolerance was partly because they were also a fringe, and as was Switzerland. And you you look at these places where the Reformed Church set in in Europe, as did Anabaptists and different other groups. They, they afforded a little bit they afforded a little bit more liberty and that that isn't difficult to understand because given a certain number of people in a room everybody's going to sort of come to some kind of implicit agreement in that room based on their interpersonal interactions what they will tolerate and what they won't tolerate and based on a whole matrix the other three Ps that John Verveke talks about what how they will allow themselves to be influenced and what they will sort of put, put guards up against. So so Malcolm and Sam, Malcolm, just I'll just play a little bit of this. A question that I wanted to ask you about is how do we, how would we design religions that were up to this challenge that don't have the problem of too much bleed, that are able to give that sort of higher sense of meaning and satisfaction around having families and that are compelling and attractive and aren't just simply using corporal punishment or something like that as a way to get things going, uh, but perhaps maybe not also just going the full Amish. How, so what, what are the characteristics that, that a religion needs to have? 
Now, now, even when you begin with this, again, people will very quickly say, well, that's a, that's a highly instrumental thing. Now you can sort of instrumentalize religion. And, and that's you know really what the Collins are doing. They're saying, we want to design a religion that's going to have the proper code so that human beings can multiply. And they're also quite open. And they say, we're not really trying to propagate our particular religion. That's often what religions try to do because we see there's a need for a diversity of religions. Now, you can sort of look at all of these points and say, well, there's probably a religion under the religion because at heart, your religion, as Peterson said way back in Lafayette, your religion are sort of the axiomatic assumptions beneath how the world works, what flourishing looks like, all of these sorts of things. That's really your religion way down low. And so what they've, what they've done is they've looked at the world and say, well, we're going to try and based on our view of the world, we're going to try and map things in such a way that we will give our children and their descendants the best way possible. Now, you know, someone like Sam and me and many of many of the rest of us, we got to talk both sides and say, okay, we're going to prop, I'm going to position myself right here. I'm going to imagine this other way because obviously Sam is a person of conviction because you know, he wouldn't have uh, suffered all he has suffered at the hands of Trinitarians for his Unitarian belief if he didn't in fact uh, believe in um, believe in his uh, Unitarian uh, confessional points, his Unitarian dogmas. But okay, but the the question is, well, 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 talk to me about what's happening in religion as we go. They have to withstand this. Yeah, well, so one, uh, on the full Amish category, they, the two dominant strategies today for staying high fertility at the cultural group are either technological disengagement or reducing the economic productivity of group members. Both of those things increase fertility rates within groups. Uh, what's critical about this is it means that most of the world's population is going to come from groups engaging in these practices of the future, which means if you're from a group that is technologically engaged in high economic productivity, uh, and you can maintain even just like a moderately good fertility rate, you will have a disproportionate level of control when it comes to the future of the human species. Um, because there are very, very few groups that are like this in the world today. And you can see sort of, he's, he's using sort of Darwinian schemicism. I'm looking around here. These are the variables I want to watch. These are, when I, these, these are what's going to go through. Now, Part of, what's, um, part of what's really good about listening to Malcolm and Simone is that they're very honest, they're not defensive, and, you know, obviously I disagree with them about a bunch of religious things, but they're, they're good conversation partners in that, well, they're looking at a lot of data and they're saying, well, a lot of these, a lot of these religious traditions are going away. Okay. It's always hard to know to what degree they will go away because, for example, if you were, let's say you were around 4 BC or BCE, depending on whether you like the E at the end of your C in BC. And you looked around the world and someone to say were to say, 300 years from now, a religion is going to capture the Roman Empire. You would likely not say it's going to be a branch of Judaism. And if you were, let's say, in the 5th century... AD and in sort of the eastern realm of the Roman Empire and Persia and that whole northern northern Africa, um, the Middle East, up into Iraq, Greece, 
if you were to say there's going to be a new religion that's going to come to dominate this region over the next couple of centuries, well, you, you, you might, you might, maybe you could have said, well, it'll have these elements. You know, C.S. Lewis makes the point in um, A Grief Observed, Sheldon Van Auken's book that has a lot of letters between Sheldon and C.S. Lewis back and forth. You might have, you might say, well, it'll, it'll sort of be an amalgam of Christianity and Judaism, but sort of a reduction. Instead of having those 619 rules, they're going to sort of have five pillars and it's going to be like emphasize submission and it's going to be pluralistic to a degree that Christians and Jews can kind of get by okay. But so, so in other words, prediction is really, really tough, but they're, you know, trying to trying to do what they can to to hit this. Um, that I'm just really going to go into this in a lot more detail than any of the other episodes we've tried. Seem like too many people are grasping at it now. So how do we? Yeah, how well, do you get there? Uh, we have an episode coming out this Friday. Um, that I, I'm just really going to go into this in a lot more detail than any of the other episodes we've done on this, which is how to keep our kids from falling out of our religion, um, and. Uh, I was talking to you a bit about this beforehand, but I was looking at like, why did my dad leave the church? Cause I'm like, okay, if I'm trying to bring my kids back to the church, I need to know why my, why my family, like my genetic line, like personality traits are heritable. Uh, they'll be just as likely to leave the church for the reason my dad did. And it was because yeah. he, um, when he was a, a kid in Sunday school, he questioned the logistics of the Noah's Ark story. Like how could all the animals get there? Even if they were babies, they would grow over this time period. And if magic was being used, why would it not say that magic was being used? That seems like a huge oversight. Um, and, uh, you know, going through all of this and he got punished for this and he's like, look, I'm not going to be in uh, any cultural tradition that punishes me for asking what are to me very reasonable questions. Um, mm -hmm. And if I brought my kids back to one of the face, the, you know, they would be kicked out for the same reason. Right. And so I was like, well, uh, the problem is that people are like, well, not all Christians. Some Christians will be like, oh, that's just like metaphors or old stories. But the problem is, is that the iterations of Christianity that loosen the the doctrinal um, uh, interpretations around this stuff end up loosening doctrinal interpretations when they clash with the urban monoculture across the board. Yeah, um, yeah. And I don't want that. I don't want some loosey-goosey church. I want a church that is sane, but also very strict um, in terms of what it expects from an individual. And, and so what you need is you need some logically consistent, like if you're staying within the Christian faith, uh, which, you know, my family is, um, if you're staying within the, or the larger Judeo-Christian tree, I guess you could say, if you're staying within the Judeo-Christian tree, you need some metric or some sort of uh, framing device for what you are throwing out and adapting and what you aren't throwing out and adapting that is not uh, what fits what society says is good today and what society says is wrong today. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've built this within our own family sort of framework for how we do that. But we've also built frameworks around uh, what is God that are much harder to disprove from a secular, not disprove because you, know, you can't disprove God, but they, they are much more plausible from a secular understanding of reality. And um, we also go through in this video, we're going to release all of the major problems that the Judeo-Christian faith has right now in terms of, because a, a lot of people think people deconvert from the tradition because uh, they want to sin, like they want to go out and do drugs and stuff like that. And there's actually, some of that, there's <laughs> some, some of that, that, but that's not the main reason. Yeah. That's not the main reason. Usually it's logical inconsistency. And then they start mm. engaging with that stuff to justify their decision because they realize after they leave, they're not any happier. Um, mm. But usually the thing that first drives them out is something like the good God problem. Like Christianity 
pretends they have good solutions to this problem. They really don't. The, the good God problem is, you know, uh, the the how can God be both all powerful and all good? And yet then people be like, well, maybe all suffering has a purpose. It's like, no, very obviously we live in a world where some suffering, you know, little kids dying of diseases before they're even born or, you know, animals eating each other alive, like some cruelty just seems. So you can watch the whole you can watch the whole video with with Sam and Malcolm on on Sam's channel and the link is below. Now, I have a ton of thoughts with respect to Malcolm's project and um, and even just what he laid out here. Part of which is if you read history history, you discover that the plausibility channel challenge remains, but the plausibility challenges change over time. For example. In the in the early centuries of 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 the church, it was a lot of the a lot of the heresies were sort of on heresies from a from a let's say a small c Catholic uh, perspective, a Trinitarian perspective. A lot of the heresies were on the side, or Christological heresies were on the side of Jesus is not fully human. We get into the modern period, a lot of the heresies are on Jesus is not divine, because there's a lot of difficulty and and trying to figure out what on earth do we mean by divine in other words a lot of the tests change over time now, now part of what's difficulty about this changing over time is that brett weinstein makes this point again and again he will assert that well the changes today are unlike the changes that we've had before yeah but that's also almost probably always the case there's a certain amount of repetition, a certain amount of commonality, and then a certain amount of novelty. And while I think that part of what technology has done is sped up a lot of this, and that's basically the heart of this video, autodidacts are probably going to arise and their ideas are going to get propagated through YouTube, through Instagram, through TikTok, and not even just their propositional um, their propositional ideas or ideas in propositional form, it's probably the true, given the nature of multimedia technology and the internet, that confessional plurality was propagated quite a bit more easily through the printing press, and other dimensions are going to be, such as practice, are going to be propagated through a multimedia environment. Now, now my purpose isn't to, to sort of say, well, well, here's, purpose is to say, here's the problem, but my purpose is also to say, the church is gonna to have to figure out what to do with this. You know, one of the, one of the, again, there tends to be a menu of options that usually arises. And I noted this watching the, the videos about Islam. I see this in Northern California, listening to people who are sort of in a new age sort of way. The, the menu of options usually arises and they're similar options. And you find these similar options being expressed in church histories, as we sort of track heresies, this is this kind of heresy, this is this kind of heresy, this is this kind of heresy. In terms of how the church adapts to a different environment, it's also the case that certain practices will tend to, certain menu items will tend to manifest themselves in time. 
Now, Malcolm was basically talking about the fact that one of the things that happened, let's, let's say, for example, in the mainline Protestant church is very much a, an assimilationist posture, that the, the mainline church, well, I, I wouldn't say that the mainline church simply adopted cultural practices. I would argue that, in fact, many of the cultural practices were implicit within mainline sensibilities. And because in many ways in American culture, the mainline sort of seeded the culture as it went forward, but as the mainline church itself increasingly becomes less and less a viable cultural player, as ministers, for example, starting in the 1950s and 60s are increasingly seen as of no cultural con of of no a very little cultural consequence you know you, you will still get somebody let's say praying at a presidential inaugural but that seems to be a really deep holdover and when of course i'm reading the forge of christendom which is the american version of tom holland's millennial you look at all of this drama going on around uh, coronations and the rest is history had a few episodes on coronations about the time of King Charles III's coronation so then they talk about um, chrism anointing with oil crowns Charlemagne was Charlemagne was crowned by the Pope now why and why not everybody crowned by the Pope and why the Pope and so the the, the forge of his, of Christendom goes over some of the history the Pope was looking for the Pope was looking for help. This gets into this whole question of the secular and the other. So it's a tremendously difficult situation. So churches then have to figure out well how to adapt. Now one way to adapt is sort of the pre-reformational way of adapting, and you can you can understand. We know, we know fairly little about the very early church. It clearly had leadership. We see, we see Paul appointing uh, presbyters, leaders in these churches that he's writing to. Um, you know, quickly we see, you know, we see leadership developing in these. Part of what, part of it's clear that the strategy, let's say, at least for the church in the Latin West, which was a far less we less wealthy, far more barbaric, uh, far less civilized environment than the church in the East was, well, sort of protecting, differentiating and protecting the hierarchy of the church. Even though in the Middle Ages there were there were huge issues with uh, clerical abuse. And in fact, that's part of what prompts the Protestant Reformation and a number of other reformations along the lines in the Christian church. Part of it was hold the, have, have, different, have different categories of people. So you can have your clergy over here and your laity over there and you hold your clergy to a certain standard. How you're going to do that? Well, even though propositional confessional is almost always an element of it, there's also practice and behavior and, and all sorts of other things that goes along with it. So you have the clergy-laity distinction. That's actually one mechanism by which churches have tried to keep some, keep some 
coherence in terms of and continuity keep a thread in terms of the life of the church and and that's that's at work and continues to be at work in confessional denominations like my own i don't think we're ever going to get rid of confessionality it's just too powerful and too useful and i would argue is just deeply implicit in even the way even the systems that are between us that we rely upon to talk to each other. I mean, even just looking at Sam and Malcolm, you will hang different confessional labels on each person, which are basically tags that go through history so that you can have an understanding of who you're talking to. I do similar things with Randall's conversations where I get into their story. And in a sense, as I'm getting into their story, I'm putting different labels. It's like, you know, you get these little sticky bookmark things um, that, you know, maybe you were in college, you use that little tiny little post-its and something in a book, you stick a little and you write a little something on it. So when you're talking to someone, you're you're doing all that propositional work because you're you're locating them on your larger map of the world. That's why confessionality and propositions, they're not going anywhere. And I don't think they're ever going to go anywhere as long as we have language and speech. It's just too good of a system. However, what, what churches now are wrestling with is, well, how can we, all of this is, is, is about how can we get beyond the personal relationship? So even though my friend Sam has tags on him like um, Unitarian, there's a whole bunch of other tags. And then my personal experience with Sam and my talking with Sam just maps him into my world. And so there are, I, I deal with him in different ways depending on how all of those maps are. And we all implicitly do this. And now I don't know Malcolm near as well. I've had a lot more experience with Sam, but you know, starting to emerge in my mind are little propositional tags that I put on Malcolm. So I try to categorize his religion. I try to understand his religion. And again, some of these tags are propositional. Some of these tags are conscious. Many of these tags are in our the rest of our systems, which aren't we're not terribly conscious of. They're not necessarily terribly language-based, but they very much go into, you know, why do I like Malcolm and Simone so much? Well, because that certain aspects of their personality strike me well. Others, when they see Malcolm and Simone, total, you know, back off, don't like them at all. This gets into that whole question of bias. And, and these biases, of course, get traveled through cultures, you know, via reputation. So churches are really going to have to are really going to have to wrestle with this and figure out well well what kinds of systems are we going to use to and, and churches are trying to do a whole number of different things at once. There there's some safety considerations in terms of even physical safety, but but often in terms of relational safety, in terms of protecting children and marriages and institutions and finance and all the usual uh, power, sex, and money, all the usual ways human beings are extraordinarily tempted in one way or another to betray others. So when I was having lunch with my my colleague yesterday. 
Now, the vast majority of Christian Reformed ministers do not watch hardly any of my videos. It's, it's just the way it is. Even close friends and colleagues, they, they have busy lives, they have churches, they have children, they're not into YouTube, they're, they don't, they're not into much of any of this. But it's very interesting because my, my friend, who I've known for years, I was, his, um, I, I was his supervisor for his seminary internship, which he did here. Um, and then we were the calling church for his church plant. I mean, all kinds, of, all kinds of ways that I've known him for a very long time. He said to me, he said, I watched this video of yours where you were like in Germany or someplace and you just sort of laid everything out and suddenly I got it. And it was interesting to me that it was this video because in this video, and I've been actually thinking the sound is really low in this video and so it's not terribly easy to listen to. But what had arisen for me when I did this video the, the basically Cassidy and Matthias um, gave me broad range. What do you want to talk about? And I thought I events like this are good to just kind of sit back and think, what on earth have we been doing for the last few years? And so that's sort of what I laid out in this video. And then Thomas Steininger followed up and noticed the emphases. And so I put these sort of these two things together in a video on my channel. And I do think about the fact that there's a number of things that churches have always done right from the start. You can find them in the New Testament. Sacraments. Preaching of the word. Care for the poor. And liturgy, you know, is implicit in the New Testament doesn't really, the New Testament doesn't really offer a liturgy. And I know just saying that I've just launched a whole bunch of, yes, it does. Um, the Orthodox majored on liturgy. The Catholics majored on Eucharist. The Reformed and the, the Protestants majored on teaching and preaching. And I do wonder that this next iteration is going to major on talking to one another. Because, was this being, I'm trying, I have all these conversations and it's hard for me to remember sometimes, now was that recorded or was that in person? I think this is what I was saying to my colleague over lunch. You look at the Camille Paglia dynamic. Women who are always going out to the river to wash clothes together. They're doing all that talking. Men who are on the field, they're doing all that talking. Men who are in the monastery, they're doing all that talking. Men who are in the army together, marching and moving and doing stuff, they're doing all that talking. We're at a point in the world where we're increasingly more and more isolated from each other. The screens are doing talking. And, and what that means is that The proposition, the propositional against ten again tends to be heightened through the screens. And also the samples of who we're listening to is distorted. People have noted for a very long time that the people that you see on mass media are more beautiful than average. 
the stories that you see through mass media, now through streaming and through social media, they have writers. So that's part of the reason that this dynamic and trust of authenticity is there, because I think we sort of have this implicit understanding that, well, if a writer wrote it, there's a, there's a, there's a level of separation between that and what we imagine to be the authentic. So we have a, there, there's a lot of these things going on right now. And part of the reason why I think I eventually sort of came down to estuary was observing that we didn't have the kind of community that probably we never recognized or paid attention to because we didn't need to because it was just always there. The kind of community that, that gave people enough trust with each other, enough time washing clothes in the river, enough time, now I'm remembering another conversation that wasn't recorded that I had yesterday where I talked about this, enough time building the barn together, enough time harvesting the field together, Enough time working in the factory together. Enough time sitting in the monastery together or the monks working in the field. Enough time for the husband and wife and the whole, the whole community to share work on each other's farms. All of that stuff was simply built into survival. And now we are all segregated in the cubicles. And so I actually think that a big piece of re-knitting community and the church together is talking. Now, the difficulty with talking is that you can get talked out. And so there's going to have to be some talking and then some, especially for men, some other kind of doing. One of the, actually, one of the, one of the ways that our church has picked up a number of older women members in the last 10 years was because a number of our members were going down to a community center participating in a knitting club. And, well, they would sit there and they would knit together at the knitting club, and then they would hear, oh, you have a women's Bible study at your church. Well, they don't knit at the women's Bible study of the church, but they start coming to that because they saw their friends at the knitting club, and now they're at the friends of the women's Bible study, and now that they're friends in the worship service. It's all a part of a whole And so confessionalism is going to be difficult because actually the church has been dealing with those issues quite a bit. And with the rise of just sort of the flood of all kinds of new ideas that you never would have had in a medieval village because there's quite a bit more isolation and there's, there's just not that many ideas floating around. And the breakdown of people just spending time together, maybe not there to talk. You don't go down to the river to talk and, oh, by the way, we're going to wash clothes while we're doing it. That actually might be a motivation because you're enjoying the talking more than you're enjoying the clothes washing. But with the breakdown of those things, we do, I don't think we necessarily appreciated how those things grew into the church and grew churches around them. As a pastor, I've, 
I'd always pay attention when I'd meet people. I am who I am, and so I'm sort of nosy, and I get people's stories out of them. That's what I, that's what I always do. So I'd often ask them how they got into such and such a church. And what you, what you discover is that churches are filled with people who have all sorts of different ideas that may be very well outside the scope or the confessional sheep pen of the church, but they're still in the church. I've made this point with respect to a number that if you show up at the church and you kind of keep your mouth shut, you got to watch that. Again, think think about what Peterson said. You know, you don't you don't decide you're just going to you know, every sermon you're not going to stand up and tell the pastor that he's full of crap on on some point of theology because you have all sorts of other relationships in the church. And you have all sorts of other connections in the church. And you value your place in the community. And the people of the church, well, probably a good number of them know that they're not going to ask you to, to teach the children about this particular point of doctrine when, in fact, you disagree with the church. Yet, they will have you serve coffee. The difficulty is that, well, that has an influence. And so those who want to just sort of purify and get rid of this penchant for diversity in human thought that human beings seem to have. In this very Darwinian age, one might argue that that's a feature, not a bug, because we know that uniformity tends to have weaknesses to unforeseen things that come into a community. But I suspect that as the church goes forward, Things like what we do in estuary are going to be really important. So we've now started our every week Sunday morning estuary at Living Stones. And we've had three sessions, and they've been, in my opinion, outstanding. And the the kind of conversation that's that's being born out of the mixture of some people who've been in this church for decades and some people who never attend this church at all has really been wonderful. Last week, one of the, one of the ideas that got put on the table, that one, was someone relating the fact that people who are utilitarian about religion out there look at the church and say, I can really see the value of my children going to church. Now, this isn't new. Churches have known this for a very long time, which was part of the reason churches had Sunday schools and churches had Sunday school buses. They would go around the neighborhood picking up children because, well, on Sunday mornings, a lot of parents were like, well, we can sleep in and we can have a cup of coffee and we don't have to go to work, but you know, the kids are kind of underfoot and they're making noise. So let's send the ch let's send the kids to Sunday school because it gets them out of our way, gives them a little bit of moral teaching, and, um, you know, what can it hurt? So they'd send the kids to church for Sunday morning. Same thing would happen in the summer with vacation Sunday school, vacation Bible school. You'd send the kids to the church all week. It was sort of a replacement school. The church likes it because it's like, hey, 
thank you for letting us teach your children Bible this week. Um, and the parents are like it because, hey, fine. And then you have this big thing at the end of the week and you bring the parents in and the king, the kids show their little arts and crafts that they did and they do their little Bible sketch and something like that. And what usually happens is that the churches harvest a few new people for their membership. That's how Vacation Bible School works and part of the reason why churches do it. So this person, it wasn't this person himself, but he was talking about somebody else that he had heard or known. He said, this person wants their kids to go to a religious, he wants them to have some religious formation because he knows the value of religious formation. Even the value of almost any religious formation. It's funny because Malcolm was talking about the fact you need an arbitrary, you need an arbitrary thing that you're committed to. I mean, that's one of Malcolm's things. It doesn't matter what it is, just as long as it's arbitrary and you learn, you learn self-control that way. But what about the dogmatics? Are you going to make your church people into little bigots with respect to one thing or another? And the things keep changing over time. Of course, in the 1950s, you don't want your kids to become a, you know, the churches were against communism or this or that. Um, I got to take this phone call. So the things that churches are sort of evaluating changes over time, and that's part of what makes the religious question such a, such a multivariant challenge. But again, that's why I think that going forward, I think the estuary practice, getting people to talk one another, getting getting people to know one another, building trust with each other, knitting them together in communities. That's going to be absolutely foundational to then being able to do the kind of processing and evaluation of ideas and practices and ways of living that over a period of time will yield wisdom and knowledge and the kind of community and society that is actually healthy and leads to flourishing. So I had a big phone call from a member of the church who's been, hasn't been in for a number of Sundays cause she's been, she's been sick. So we uh, had to talk to her and um, yeah. So let me know what you think. Leave a comment.